Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Let's continue our series, Fishing License. Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and when he did, he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Now, I don't think they had any idea when he said that to them, really, what that meant. I, I think they probably were intrigued at the idea of following Jesus, but fishers of men, I don't know if they knew what that was. But he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And and as time went by, that's exactly what they became. They told other men and women about Jesus who told other men and women about Jesus. And here we are 2,000 plus years later, and and we are worshiping our our Lord and Savior this morning. So that's incredible because the idea of sharing our faith and talking to others about it and trying to get them to join us and believe what we believe doesn't sit too well with people, sometimes doesn't sit too well with us. In fact, in in sort of a strange way, we're glad that somebody fished for us, right? We're glad somebody took the time to invite us to church or give us a CD or a book or whatever they did to try to get our attention in in terms of Jesus. I mean, I'm glad somebody shared the message of Jesus with me and invited me to church or gave me a book or a CD to listen to, but talking to other people about it, eh, I don't know if I want to do that. And depending on your background, you may think it's wrong to try to get other people to believe the way you believe. So, If you'll remember, at the end of our first sermon in this series, I gave you a homework assignment, and I haven't asked you to turn it in, and I haven't checked it, and I won't, you know, it's not anything like that, but, and you've got more time, but um, I want to give you a new assignment today, but before we move on to that assignment, I, I, I asked you if you would write a letter to the person who, or persons who were responsible for fishing for you. Now, if you're like me, I grew up in the church, and so... There's really, I mean, it was, it was a whole collection of people that, mainly my mother, who kept taking me and telling me about Jesus. So I, I became a Christian when I was 10, um, didn't really know who to write that letter to. So, so what you could do if you're kind of like me and you don't have that one person, I kind of gravitated to the people that really have made a difference and solidified faith in my life. And I read one of the letters to you, it was a, to my youth pastor, Doug Newhouse. I sent that letter to him this week. Um, I wanted you to do that. I wanted you to write that letter for really two reasons. First of all, it reminds us all that we were all fish once. We, we needed somebody to fish for us. We needed somebody to tell us. We needed somebody to share faith with us. And the second reason I want you to write it is hopefully writing that letter and re-experiencing that moment could possibly motivate some of us to move past our fear and to allow God to make us fishers of men. And if you haven't done it, write your note. You don't have to mail it but at least write it, because I think it would be a good exercise for you. We need to remember that we were all fish once. We were, we're, we're grateful that somebody fished for us, reached out, was bold enough, and had enough courage to talk to us about Jesus. Last week, we asked the question, why do we need to talk about it? We need to talk about it because the message of Jesus is not an intuitive message. I mean, if you went and sat under a tree somewhere and just thought really hard about God, you might come to the conclusion that God exists. You may even come to the conclusion that, that God loves you. You may even come to the conclusion that there's good and evil in the world. I mean, you can watch Star Wars and get that, right? I mean, it doesn't take a lot. But you probably would not come to the conclusion just by sitting under a tree and meditating and thinking about it that Jesus died on a cross to forgive you for your sins. That's history. And the same way we need somebody to tell us what happened in the Civil War, you wouldn't sit under a tree and automatically know about the Civil War. Someone has to teach you that in a history class. That's history. We talk about history. Same thing with Jesus. There's a history to it, and if you're not told the history, 
you're not going to necessarily come to it on its own, on your own. So, you know, God really has entrusted us and told us the message is for you to proclaim to various generations. Because Christianity is not simply a philosophy or a theology or a reality or a set of ethics or values. Christianity is something that is grounded in history. Christianity is not necessarily just a belief system. It's, it's, it's an event. It's about something that happened in history. And, and the only way you know about history is if somebody tells you about it. So the New Testament believers began to become fishers of men. And they said the reason we have to talk about it is that even though people would prefer us not to talk about it, the reason we want to tell other people what we believe in, and, and it's not simply that we believe, it's more than that. We have to talk about it because it's something that we have seen and heard. We can't unsee it. We can't unhear it. This, this happened to us. We've got to talk about it. It's interesting that we're grateful that someone caught us, and we know that no one is going to know if someone doesn't tell them. At the same time, we still shrink back from our own responsibility to be fishers of men. And I think that if we did a survey and we shared with each other what it is that keeps us from telling different people about Jesus, I think you could boil it down probably to one word, and that word is we're afraid, fear. We're afraid, aren't we? Now, you may express it in different ways, but that's really what it boils down to. You might say, you know, I'm afraid that someone's going to ask me the hard question. What if I sound stupid? What if it gets awkward? What if I get uncomfortable? What if they fire me? What if the person I'm talking to just turns and walks away? What if it ends a relationship? What if? It's the big what if that keeps us from doing this. And because of fear in our concern and concern, we shrink back and then we deal with all this guilt. You know, well, I know I ought to and I'm glad somebody did for me, but suddenly our fear puts us on the sidelines. And when you hear a message like this or a series like this and you say, you know, I know I ought to, but fear just swells up inside of us and it, it, it prohibits us. And the interesting thing is the primary players in the New Testament were all a bunch of cowards themselves. Peter, one time, a girl came up to Peter and she said, don't, don't you follow Jesus? And he cursed at her and said, no, I've never heard of him. To which we would respond, you big coward. You do know who he is. When Jesus was arrested, what did his best friends do? They left him. They scattered. They didn't come to his defense they went a, different, a dozen different directions trying to seek cover because they didn't want to be associated with Jesus. And these were his closest followers. But in the book of Acts, these same cowards became courageous witnesses to what they had seen and what they had heard. Something had happened in the process, and today I want to talk a little bit about that. Because in today's story, we gain insight into how the first century Christians thought about Christianity and why they were so willing to become fishers of men in spite of the fact that they were afraid. They had more to fear than we do. When it comes to what we believe, they, they had, there was a lot more at stake for them than there is for us. Acts 4.23, if you've got your Bible, turn to Acts 4.23. We'll get there in a few minutes, but I want you to be fine in that because there might be a couple of things you want to underline or highlight. This is a, 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 a continuation of the story that we were in last week, so let me catch you up on, on last week. Um, last week, you know, we talked about the fact that Jesus has died, he's been on the cross, he's been buried, he's been risen from the dead, he went to be with the Father, and it's what Christians believe, all that. And a few weeks later, the men who had hung out with Jesus and who had been 
with Jesus, they, they began to talk about it. So two of them, uh, Peter and John, they're going to the temple to pray, and on the way to the temple, they see a man who has never walked before. He's a lame man. <laughs> I had to, I was, we had an elders meeting this week, and if you know Matt Sullivan, is one of our elders. Matt is, is um, he's in a wheelchair. He had a spinal injury when he was a young man. And um, if you've been here for the last six or seven weeks, a lot of our stories have kind of centered around people who are unable to walk. And, and uh, I got tickled at Matt. He looked at me and said, dude, what's up? When are you going to stop talking about that? So um, we, we move on past it today, but, but I want to bring you up to speed and talk about that for just a minute. The, the two guys, Peter and John, have gone into the temple to pray, and they pass this guy who has been lame his entire life. He, he can't walk, and, and Peter says to him, look, I don't have money to give you, but rise up and walk. You can, I'm going to give you something better than money. I'm going to give you the ability to walk. So um, this guy gets up, and, and he's able to walk. He's leaping. He's running. He's shouting. He's, he goes into the temple. Look, everybody, I can walk. And, and they say, how did you do that? And he said, this guy did it. He's pointing to Peter, and he's like clinging to Peter. Well, as you might imagine, a crowd begins to gather around Peter, and Peter's a good preacher, and if there's a crowd and, and nobody really has anything to say, the preacher's always got something to say. And so Peter starts to preach this little mini-sermon to the people about Jesus. Well, the people in charge of the temple don't like the fact that Peter's talking about Jesus, because much like the people in our culture, and maybe there's somebody even in here that thinks this way, you know, you, you, you might say, hey, if you want to believe in Jesus, that's fine, but don't talk about it. If you want to raise your kids to, to believe in Jesus, that's fine. But, but, and if you want to be around people that believe in Jesus and you want to talk to them about believing in Jesus, that's great. But don't talk to us about it. Don't talk in public. For goodness sakes, these leaders would have said, don't talk about it in the temple. If you want to talk about God, God's safe. If you want to talk about Moses and Jacob and Noah and Abraham and all those guys, that's cool. You can do that. If you want to talk about religion, you can talk about religion. You want to talk about the law, talk about the law. But don't talk about Jesus. They didn't want to hear it. It was bothersome. It was offensive. And so Peter and John get arrested by the temple guards. And the next day, they bring them out before these religious leaders. And the leaders say, look, you've got to quit talking about Jesus. And that's when Peter preaches another sermon. And he says, look, we have got to preach about what we have seen, not what we believe. See, it's not, I could, I could torture you and get you to believe something different than you believe. Eventually, you would break down and say, okay, I'll change my mind, I believe this, I don't believe that. Um, but if you've seen something, you can't be tortured beyond the point that you can't unsee, that you can unsee what you've seen. And that's what Peter and John were saying is, look, we, this isn't what we believe, this is what we saw. We heard this. We've got to talk about what we've seen and what we've heard. And then he makes this claim, Acts 4.12, it's just a beautiful piece of scripture for there is no other name under heaven given by to mankind by which we must be saved the name of jesus in other words god has done something unique and if we don't talk about it nobody's going to know so the leaders put them in jail and they have another meeting and they come back out and they say look this is your last warning don't talk about Jesus anymore. We, we don't want you to. And then they send them home. They're hoping that after keeping them in jail overnight, they've kind of thrown a scare into them. They won't talk about Jesus anymore. So they send them home. On the way home, Peter and John, you know, they're probably having some kind of conversation. We don't know what that conversation was. But, you know, if you use your, your what, what I learned once was, is called your sanctified imaginator. If you just use your imagination, you can kind of imagine what that conversation might have been like 
after you've been told to stop preaching about Jesus and they threw you in jail, um, I know what I'd be saying if I was on the way home after an ordeal like that. I'd be saying, "Woo, that was close. That was close. I mean, we were, that's just, you know, those guys are serious. They didn't like us. They didn't like what we were doing. They could have had us put in jail for a long time. You know, we might need to move out of Jerusalem and find a place that's a little more comfortable for us, um, a, a place maybe that's more receptive to the word. Uh, whoo, that was close. God, thank you for answering my prayer and getting me out of there. That's probably how I would have been talking. What's interesting is that when they get back to the people who have been praying for them all night, people who've probably been up all night worried sick about them, because don't forget this, the people who put Peter and John in prison are the same people who hung Jesus on a cross. The, the people who put Jesus on the cross have the power to do the same to Peter and John. That's who they've been around. If you have the leverage to get the head guy and Jesus crucified you can have stuff done to his followers as well and so very reasonably thinking peter and john could have been thrown in jail or even even put to death well they arrive back at 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 the the headquarters with the rest of the jesus followers and everybody's asking hey what happened you know we last we saw they were carting you guys off and we didn't know what was going to happen to you and they begin to tell the story and this is where the story that we're going to look at today picks up acts chapter 4 Verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them when they heard this. In other words, when all these Christ followers and all these new converts heard the story, they raised their voice together in prayer to God. So they hear what's happened. They hear about Peter and John, and they are now inclined to pray. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning is this prayer that they prayed. Now, hang on a minute, if you were Peter and John, or you were a follower of Jesus, and these two guys are important, what you're thinking is, hey, we need these two guys. We, we can't be doing without Peter and John. I mean, they, they spent time with Jesus. We need to, we need to have them teach us, because they were, they've spent time with the Savior. We need to know what they experienced. We need to know what they know. John's going to write a book. He hadn't written his book yet. We need him to write his book. Peter's going to write two books. We need these guys. They're important. And if they're going to persecute these guys, chances are good that they're going to try to persecute us as well. So in light of all that, I would ask you this question. If you knew all that and you were these guys and you were going to pray, what would your prayer be? What would you pray for? My prayer would have sounded something like this. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day because we've always got to thank God for the day, right? That's that's how our prayers have to start. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. And then we get to the really important stuff. Help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. Protect me, protect me, protect me, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. Am I right? That's what our prayers sound like. Most of the time, our prayers are a little self-centered. They're kind of selfish. But what you see in this text is that suddenly this group of people, they have an aha moment. And it dawns on them what's going on. They begin to connect some dots, and they begin to remember what they were taught as children in the Psalms, because all these people were raised reading the Psalms. And one Psalm that they read referred to the Messiah that would one day come, but they'd pretty much given up hope that the Messiah would come, because hundreds of years had gone by and there'd been no Messiah. Suddenly things begin to be put together for them, and and when Peter and John come back and tell the story, suddenly it dawns on these people that they are in the middle of something significant that God is doing. And not only are they in the middle of it, they're major players. 
that somehow God seems to have involved them in something that he's been up to for generations. And, and when they pray, they don't pray like we would pray. Bless me, bless me, bless me. Protect me, protect me, protect me. That's not the prayer they pray. Suddenly they see the big picture and they pray an incredible prayer, one that reflects a perspective that I wish, personally, I would lay my hands on more often. I wish that I prayed that way more often. Listen to this prayer. This, this thing, they don't start with, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Here's how they start. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. In other words, God who is large and in charge. Sovereign literally means to be in control. God, it looked like you had lost control. We're beginning to see that you never lost control. You've been in control since day one. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Maybe that's how we should start our prayers. Maybe we should abandon, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, and just start, Sovereign Lord, you made it all. We recognize you're in charge. Sovereign Lord, verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of your servant, our father David. In other words, and we remember that there's something that David wrote in the Psalms. And we memorized it as children. A psalm that talked about the coming Messiah and when he would be persecuted and he would be tormented and things wouldn't go so well. And we remember that that psalm, we, we've recognized that that's what's happened before our very eyes. That psalm, the prophecy in that psalm has been fulfilled before our very eyes. And it's starting to dawn on us, you're up to something. Verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And as children, they had memorized this psalm and talked about the Messiah would come and that the rulers and the Gentiles and the kings would try to take a stand against the Holy One, the Messiah, and it wouldn't work. They would plot in vain. And all of a sudden, it dawns on them we have seen this fulfilled. This is exactly what's happened before our very eyes. Now look at verse 27. Indeed, which is just another way of saying, ah, we get it. It's, we're starting to see it now. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles, that, that would be the Romans, and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. That psalm that we memorized as children, that psalm that we quoted as good Jews, generation after generation, and we wondered, what did it mean kings would stand against our Messiah? Oh my goodness, it's happened. To thwart what you would do in history and against your anointed one, we're in the middle of a fulfillment of major, major prophecy. We have been eyewitnesses of the activity of God, and oh my goodness, we almost missed it. Because when he was arrested, we were praying that he would be released. We had no idea what God was up to. When they yelled crucify, we, we prayed that, that Jesus would be spared. When they carried him off to, the, to, to prison, we prayed that he would be released. We prayed that he wouldn't die. And then he died and we thought, oh no, God has lost all control. And then he was raised from the dead. And we were mystified. And now we get it. This was your plan all along. We have lived through the fulfillment of prophecy. You are the sovereign God 
who is active and alive in our midst. Verse 28, they, talking about Herod and Pontius Pilate, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, we thought things had spun out of control. You were there the whole time. Pilate thought he was making an independent decision. Herod thought he was exercising his authority. Little did they know, O sovereign God, that they had played right into your will. That you had foreordained and you foreknew what would happen generations and generations ago. We thought this had all fallen apart. You are the sovereign God who's been in control all along. It's beginning to dawn on them. And I think Peter and John and probably Andrew and James and the rest of the people that were in the room probably thought to themselves, how embarrassing. We were standing there with the Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane and they came and arrested him. And instead of thinking to ourselves, this is it, this is a part of God's plan, we thought God had left us and we ran for cover. And we were right there in the midst of the activity of God. We were right there in the middle of what was unfolding, what God had decided centuries ago would happen, and we were such cowards. Oh, how we wish we could have that moment back. (laughs) And then poor Peter, poor Peter, is thinking to himself, a little girl, a little girl for crying out loud. If I had only seen what was happening, if I if I'd only realized that sovereign God was active and that all these events that seemed to be going the wrong way were actually going the right way. If I had known, I might have responded differently to her, but instead I cursed and I said I never knew him. And I denied my Savior and my Lord. And all of a sudden, It's dawning on this group. It's starting to settle in on them. Indeed, God is up to something unique. And then they make their request. Now, we pray and we start up front with our request. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Okay, I got that over with. And now help me, help me, help me. Bless me, bless me, bless me. Give me, give me, give me. They've just now, they haven't even gotten to their request yet. They're just going, oh God, you're so big. You're so awesome and you're so active. How could we miss it? That's what they're praying And then they get to their request, and they don't know what to ask for. Because what do you ask when you realize that you've been asking, what you've been asking for so far seems to be going against what it is that God wants to happen? When you you realize, I've been praying all the wrong stuff, now what do I pray? And, And to find out later, you've been praying against God's will. You've been praying all the wrong stuff. So now this group's thinking, okay, Our lives are at risk. We could be arrested at any moment. They could be marching in here and and, and just take all of us out of the room and put us under arrest. We have a major league problem. What if our arrest, what if our persecution, and what if the deal with Peter in jail in the overnight, what if that's what God's up to? What if that's what he wants? We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to ask for. See, this is a scary thought for you to have, but I've come to the conclusion, and I know in my head, I know that God has not one wit's problem with my death if it means his glory. If it means his glory, if I get persecuted and God gets glory, that's okay with God. That's not a pleasant thing to think about. We don't want to be persecuted. We don't want to die. We don't, nobody wants that, but God's perfectly willing to let things happen 
if he's going to get glory. And that messes with us sometimes, and I know we don't like that, but that's what they're starting to, to come into this understanding of, oh my goodness, persecution may be a part of this. Death may be a part of this. It might be a part of what God wants to happen. I don't know if he's willing to let the Savior die. It could be he's willing to let me die. So what do you pray? So look at this, verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats. They aren't praying, Lord, do away with our enemies because who knows, you may want to use our enemies. They don't say don't let us be arrested or persecuted because, God, you may want us to be arrested or persecuted. We don't really know what to pray for. So they find this very natural word. They say, God, about these people who are persecuting us and threatening us and about these people who could arrest us and really do harm to us, even take our life, at least consider those threats. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray for. But we want you to know that we're aware of them, and we just hope that you're aware of them. However, if you choose to use them, we know better than to ask you. We know we're not that smart. So, but would you consider their threats? And then they ask for something that very few of us in the room have a tendency to ask for. They ask for something that is so contrary to what we normally ask for. Here's a group of people that, that in, in, at least in the moment of time that they're in, they have a proper perspective of what God is up to and, and the proper perspective of God's sovereignty and the idea that he is in control, that he's active, and that he's invited them to be players in this grand story that's unfolding. And they ask for something that, I think we should begin to ask for because it's something that we need and it runs contrary to so much that we ask God for. Here's a group that is scared, whose lives are in jeopardy. Here's a group that has seen what we would love to have seen and they've been misunderstood by their entire community. They're not going to say protect us. They're not going to say, you know, keep us from harm because we don't know if that's God's will. They aren't praying deliver us. They don't know what God's will is necessarily. But here's what they know. Oh, sovereign God who is active, who's been willing to use us in the process, if you don't do anything else, do this one thing for us. Verse 29, now, Lord, consider their threats, and here it is, and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Several months ago, we, we handed you black armbands, arm bracelets. And I know those kind of irritate me, so I don't like to wear them, but um, it was a rubber black bracelet. It said, be bold. And the whole idea behind that was just to have you wear that and remember to be bold in your faith, to be bold as you pray, to just be a, a bolder Christian. To, to say, you know, give me, enable me, speak through me, enable me to be a bold person. Do you pray that? We don't, we don't pray that because usually our prayers are about us, right? We're usually praying about what's really important to us because in my world, I want to be sovereign, right? I don't want to think about a sovereign God. I want to be sovereign. It's about me. You know why, why these people could pray that? They could pray that because they understood sovereign God and they knew that he was up to something. And not only is he going to do what he wants to do, he's in their midst doing it. And they've just seen it and witnessed it. And not only that, now they're beginning to understand that they have been invited to be a part of the process. He's saying, John, I want you to be a part of this. Peter, I want you to be a part of it. Mary, I want you to participate. 
I want you to be players in what it is that I'm doing, God would say. The fact that they've come to grips with this, the fact that God's going to do what God wants to do, regardless of what other people do. And all of a sudden, they're confronted with the sovereignty of God like very few people ever are. And what I want you to notice is it does not motivate them to sit it out. See, what they don't say is, well, God's going to do what God's going to do, so I guess I don't have to do nothing. He's going to do it all. I don't need to do anything. See, as you begin to understand the sovereignty of God, and as you wrestle through issues of predestination and foreknowledge, and you, know, you, get it, you start talking about some of that stuff, and your brain starts to hurt, and you know, people think they know what that's all about, and I read all that, and I'm like, I don't know what God knows and foreknows and when he knew and how he knew and what he didn't know. I, who, that, that all gets crazy, but here's what I know. If ever in that discussion you find yourself being demotivated to serve and to speak God's truth, if, if you ever find yourself demotivated to say, nah, God's going to do what he's going to do, then you don't understand sovereignty. Because w- when men and women were faced with the activity and sovereignty of God, they said, you know what, all bets are off. If you don't do anything else for us at the end of our life, at the end of the day, we want to know that we were players in the activity of the sovereign God. So their prayer was, enable us to speak with boldness. You know what boldness is? Here's the good news. Boldness is not volume. What I do on Sunday mornings is not boldness. You you know, you'd look at me and say, man, Brett, you're so bold. No, this isn't boldness. There's nothing bold about this. I mean, I'm not going to get arrested today for doing this. I'm not in any harm. I'm not in harm's way because I'm preaching this morning. It's a free country. I can do that. Um... You want to know how bold I am? Measure me somewhere else. Don't measure me on Sunday morning. What else am I going to do on Sunday morning? I show up, you show up, you kind of look at me, it's like, okay, talk to me. So I I do, so I talk. This isn't boldness. Boldness isn't some guy holding up a sign on the highway as cars go by that says repent. That's not boldness. I'm not even sure that's really all that strategic. To be honest with you, I think that does more harm than it does good. That We could debate that, but, but that's not boldness. That guy's not going to get arrested. He's probably not going to lose his job. He's never going to see the people on the highway again. Not that big a deal. You know what boldness is? Boldness is when one of you is around one of your friends who doesn't know the Lord. And the conversation gets dangerously close to religious things. And it gets dangerously close to Jesus. And you know you should say something. The the door is wide open for you to say something. And you hesitate. And then you go, no, I'm going to go for it. And then you talk about Jesus. That's boldness. Boldness is a a 35-year-old guy who's got a dad that was a staunch military guy. He's tough. He doesn't want to hear about God. He doesn't want to hear about Jesus. And he so desperately wants his dad to come to Christ. And he finally says, I'm going to broach the subject because I want my dad to know the great heavenly father. And I want him to come into faith of Jesus Christ. That is boldness. Boldness is through your personality, however God has designed you, through your gifts and talents. Boldness is simply speaking up when the opportunity presents itself. And it's not about volume, and it's not about personality, and it's not about a sign, and it's not about preaching. It's about men and women who have been perfectly positioned in someone else's life. See, here's what I know. 
there's a lot of people that you get to be around that, that you have access to, that you have influence with, that I'll never have influence with. And yeah, I'm a preacher and I know some things and I know a little bit about how to talk to people, but I don't know the people you know and I don't have the relationships with them you have and they don't trust me like they trust you. And, and you've got a story to tell and they've watched your life and they've seen Jesus make a difference in you. And because of all that, they would listen to you, they wouldn't listen to me. And then vice versa, there are people in my world that you probably couldn't ever get to because, because of my experience and because of what I've been through and what I can relate to them and, and background that we've got. And, and certain people you would never have influence with, I have influence over, or not influence with, and so it's, it becomes my responsibility to, to be bold with them. The thing that moved Christians, the thing that frightened the people that were around Christians, the thing that intimidated and frightened them, and it wasn't volume. What was intimidating and what was frightening and a little strange was that even though these people could lose their jobs, even though they could lose their life, they would not shut up about Jesus. And in some cases, people lost their life. And in spite of what they had to lose, when they could, they were insistent upon talking about Jesus. Why would you do that? Because suddenly in Jerusalem, a handful of believers realized, oh, God's at work. He's doing something, and he's invited us into it. How could I refuse to fish? Why wouldn't I harness my fear and speak boldly? Which may be a whisper, may be an invitation. Maybe you just befriending somebody and saying, hey, can I help you? You know, have you read this book? You want to listen to this CD? How could I not speak boldly about our sovereign God who's active in the world and has invited me to participate with him? So here's your homework. Would you just for a week... I wish this was a lifestyle thing. It'd be great if this became a lifestyle thing for you. But, but just for a week, would you just add, would you be willing to add to your prayers this simple little prayer? You know, I mean, you can still do the, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. You can still do that. But at some point, would you say, oh, by the way, God, would you enable me to speak your word with boldness? God, I, there's a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about. But would you enable me to speak your word with boldness? Can I get you to say that with me? Enable me to speak your word with boldness. Say it again. Enable me to speak your word with boldness. Would you just pray that for a week? Just pray that for a week. Here, here's what's going to happen. If you will pray that prayer for a week, two things are going to happen to you. First of all, you are going to become more aware of opportunities around you. There's no question. You, you will see the opportunities around you. Second thing is going to happen, you're going to be faced to force a fear that it's time you were faced to conquer. You're, you're, you, you, it's time you faced and conquered. The fear of letting it be known that you stand in a different place with a different value system. Do you know why we should be bold? Because God is still sovereign. What in the world do we have to fear when our God is in control? There's nothing to fear. God who can take the crucifixion of his son and plant it in the middle of history and make it the reference point for the rest of our lives can certainly take your boldness and use it in a way that would glorify him. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. <laughs> and the disciples said, what's a church? Jesus said, I want you to go into every nation and make disciples. And the disciples looked at each other and said, every nation? And they're like four of them? I mean, Really? 
And here we are 2,000 plus years later, and there are Christians in every nation on the planet. Do you know why? Because God's still active, and God's still in charge. And we have been invited to be players in this unfolding plan that God is laying out through the generations and in the world. How can we justify sitting on the sideline? Here's the good news. God's will is going to be accomplished with you or without you. You can sit it out and you can sit on the sidelines. But why would you do that when he's invited you to be a part of it? When he's invited you to be a part of something bigger than yourself, why would you do that? And I don't want you to sit back and say, well, you know, I raised a family and I made, some, I made a few bucks. And, but religion, that's a private thing. I'm not going to do that. What an opportunity missed. What a wasted opportunity because of fear. I'm going to say this and then I'll close. The outcome is not your responsibility. Understand that. The outcome, when you're bold and you tell somebody about Jesus, I think that we put on ourselves, oh, you know, I got to do this the right way. And, and oh God, I hope they accept. I hope they do. I hope they come to you. I hope they do that. Let me just tell you, that's not your responsibility. That's up to God and them. Your responsibility is to be faithful when God says, here's a door, I want you to walk through it. Your responsibility is to do it. When God says, here's an opportunity, they're waiting on you to say something about Jesus. That's your responsibility. Your responsibility is not to ensure that they come to Jesus because you can't do that. Don't put that pressure on yourself. At the end of the day, we've been invited into this. And all, it's, all it takes is for us to just have the courage and the guts to say, hey, what do you think about Jesus? And no, you're not going to have every answer. You're not always going to know what to say. God will fill in the gaps. But aren't you glad somebody did that for you? Aren't you glad somebody offered you a book or a CD or mentioned the name Jesus in your presence? One last thing. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I don't know what you think it's about. It's not about being a goody two-shoes. It's not about trying to be good enough. It's not about... You're never going to be perfect, trust, okay? You're in a room full of unperfect people. We all get it. We're all a mess. It's about getting your sins forgiven. Because good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do. And if you've never given your life to Christ, I, I, for the life of me, I don't, I don't understand that. Here's why we preach. Here's why we talk about Jesus. Because we believe he's made a difference in our life. And we're better off because of it. And we love you. And because we love you, we want you to be better off. That's why we tell you about Jesus. So if you've never given your life to Christ, please give that some consideration. Let's pray. The band's going to come out and lead us out. Father, we, just, we stand in front of you this morning and we recognize that you are a sovereign God, that you're in charge, you're in control, and who are we? And Lord, it's, just, it's humbling when we start to see how big you are and how you, you work in such masterful ways and you're up to so much in the world, and, and we are so tempted to disbelief, and we're so tempted to believe that the world's spun completely out of control, and that's just not the case. So, Father, would we see our part this morning? Would we be able to see that you have invited us into this process and that our boldness furthers the kingdom? Our boldness means other people come to Christ. Father, there's, there, there, I'm sure there's one person in here who's never done that, who's never given their life to Jesus. I pray that you'd help them to see that it's probably not what they think. Father, I pray that you would just bust the door of their heart down. 
come in with a flood of your love and overwhelm them with your grace and forgiveness. And I pray that you'd help them see that them being good isn't going to get them to heaven. Them being forgiven is going to get them to heaven. And I pray that they would see the cross and know that's what it's all about. It's about forgiveness. So Father, we just we lavish our praise and worship on you. We love you with all we have. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.